On this episode of Water Flying, we are talking about winter maintenance of seaplanes. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of Water Flying. We are on location at Whip Air at, in uh, South St. Paul. Minnesota on a sunny uh, November uh, day and uh, waiting for good weather. So we are, we thought it would be a great opportunity to talk about winter maintenance of seaplanes, some of the considerations that pilots and owner operators may want to consider, and also some of the things they might want to do as far as taking advantage of the opportunities to do some maintenance during the winter months. So Kurt Snedeker of Whip Air is joining us. He is the maintenance department manager. He's been here an awful long time. He's a super resource uh, for all things float plane maintenance, and he's taken some time out of his busy schedule to sit down with me today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. <laughs> so I am just thrilled to be here. Uh, <laughs> I say that kind of jokingly because I always like coming to Whip Air and spending time here with this amazing atmosphere and everything that, that that exists here. And I have to tell you, the crew has been so gracious every time we're here as far as uh, just rolling out the red carpet, providing us a vehicle and, and making us feel at home and allowing us to get some work done while we wait for days for the snow to stop to get <laughs> heading south with the Super Cub. Um, but let's talk about this a little bit. So, Kurt, you have a long <laughs> background uh, with aviation and aviation maintenance. And uh, I really think it, it, you know, that's what brings the kind of the breadth of tribal knowledge uh, to the uh, to the game here. Yes, it's uh, it's been helpful for uh, all of my career here looking back on what I've done in the past and uh, it's experiences everything and it helps to know uh, all the tribal knowledge from other very experienced mechanics and and uh, to help make my job easier. So how did you get started? Uh, you've been you've been in this game a long time. Yeah I started when I was 15. I had a family member who was a, uh, a director of maintenance at a maintenance facility in Dodge City, Kansas. And at 15, I was asked to come on board and be a shop helper, sweeping floors, picking up other people's messes, and uh, just hanging around airplanes. And uh, I've not left the business since. I've been in it from that point on, so I've been doing this for 44 years. 44 years in aviation maintenance and around airplanes. Yep. And I think you went through one of the uh, uh, larger programs, maintenance programs, too. Uh, did you do your A&P at Spartan? Yes, or? I did. I I, I knew within a few months of being uh, a helper in that shop that this is what I wanted to do. So when I was a sophomore and junior in high school, I started the process of, of uh, trying to get on at Spartan and 
it was a very busy school, so it's not necess- it wasn't at that time necessarily easy to get in. Okay. So yeah. I started the process of applications when I was very young, and so I had a plan from day one that this is what I was going to do, and I, I did it through Spartan. How was that uh, experience, and how was the program? I, I loved it. I mean, I had already been introduced to airplanes, so I, I was, uh, uh, without sounding arrogant, it wasn't really difficult for me because <laughs> I, I had already been introduced to all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and by the time I went to school, actually graduated high school, I had already entered doing maintenance instead of just sweeping floors. I was actually doing oil changes, annual inspections, and uh, we didn't do modifications there necessarily, but it was just maintaining uh, all types of land plane aircraft. Well, if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking about a career in aviation and specifically aviation maintenance, uh, you know, I can relate to that. I mean, if you're hanging around the FBO or the maintenance facility, uh, sooner or later, you're going to be turning screws and, and doing other things on the airplanes. And um, there's a fabulous story. I mean, I can remember being 12 years old and being invited. I Actually, I heard these guys talking about P-51s being in a hangar. And, I, you know, I went and pulled on their shirt sleeve and was like, guys, can I come see? And I, I go into this hangar and there's five P-51s in there. And um, they were like, well, kid, you want to, you know, we're, we're changing all the screws on the skins. You want a bucket of screws and a Yankee screwdriver? And I was like, wait, are you kidding? Yeah, of course I do. Yeah, you feel like a big shot getting <laughs> yeah. to turn a screw. Yeah, and so I'm, yeah, I'm like, I'm working on a P-51 Mustang. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, I would say that if you have any interest in, in aviation and in, in the maintenance area, um, go inject yourself. I always tell that to people, whether they're, they're interested from a, a pilot aspect or a maintenance aspect, you know, inject yourself into the community, inject yourself into the atmosphere and opportunities will present themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have an apprenticeship program here where we're trying to get young people involved uh, as best we can with some local community colleges to try to uh, introduce as many people as we can to this business. Which, I again, is just spectacular. Uh, that's forward thinking, uh, and it's really appreciated. So you went from Spartan. Uh, you actually act, haven't had too many aviation uh, career positions because you've been here the majority of Where did you go from Spartan? Uh, from Spartan, I went back to the Mahan's Boot Hill Flying Service in <laughs> Dodge City, Kansas. Boot Hill Flying Service. <laughs> and, uh, which has since uh, been sold to somebody else. But uh, I went back to that facility, and I ended up, running that shop for a couple of years until I turned 23, and then I went to Northwest Airlines. Wow. I applied there and got on at Northwest up here. That's what moved me to Minnesota. Uh, So in uh, 1985, I came up here and started there. Wow. And how long were you at Northwest before coming over here, and and how did that happen? I was there 20 years. Wow. And in 2005, when the uh, the maintenance department, maintenance side of Northwest was starting to be disbanded. I left there and came here and, uh, and thankfully the Whiplingers accepted me to work here and I've been here ever since. So that was a transition from uh, commercial jet aircraft to uh, the float industry. It wasn't too difficult because I had already done general aviation for about six years down in Kansas and through AMP school. So it the transition wasn't difficult. In fact, for the last 10 years at the airlines, I would I was pining to get back into general aviation. GA. It was just more, more fun to me. The airlines wow. was a, it wasn't a horrible place to work, but uh, the general aviation side has always been my passion. Yeah. Well, this is kind of 
one of the main hubs of seaplane flying, and there's always a ton of activity going on here. So, uh, you know, I, I'm always intrigued to come here because I'm kind of wondering what's in the hangar and, and what's being worked on and where. So uh, there's they're, sometimes they're doing, air, you know, really elaborate airbrush paint jobs on a Twin Otter yes. over in the paint shop, or you'll have a, a Grumman Goose out here mm-hmm. that's being stripped down to the, you know, literally all the skins off it and being rebuilt. You just never know what's going to be here when you come here. And that's the draw to general aviation versus the airlines. At the airlines, you're more of a specialist. I was in the engine shop for 16 years working on the, the high-pressure turbine section of the, all the engines. But uh, although there's a variety of engines, it's still pretty repetitive, and you, you get very uh, schooled in, in one aspect of the engine. But this has the variety that is uh, never-ending. There's always something new coming up in all different aircraft, different types of engines, piston or turbine, uh, the airframe platforms are all different. It's, it's, the variety is great. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, so let's uh, talk about a little bit, uh, go into the topic of uh, what pilots need to know about winter maintenance for their seaplanes, and then also some of the opportunities. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, a little bit different than I'm used to uh, out there right now. We've been down in the 20s uh, this week uh, while I've been here. Uh, I'm actually thinking about it. You know, I, I've been up in Alaska and spent a fair amount of time in the snow and, and colder uh, regions, but most of my flying is down south in the warm stuff. And I thought, again, it was a great opportunity to explore things that people might not think about because as my airplane's sitting in the hangar and we're going to have to depart somewhere between two degrees and 21 degrees on departure when we finally when the snow finally stops uh it's it's something that's really made me think about it uh, long and hard so uh what are some of the things that pilots maybe haven't thought about or that if you're used to flying in warmer weather like myself that you should consider well as far as the floats go uh, the main consideration is to pump the floats and make sure there's no water left in the compartments because uh, that can freeze and cause bulging of the skins and loosening of rivets. So it's uh, highly recommended to pump the floats out and maybe put a little bit, very small amounts of antifreeze into each compartment. So if water does end up in the compartment over through condensation or a cover seal leaking or a pump-out plug being missing and water getting in there, it won't freeze and do damage to the float. That's number one. Okay. Uh, and then, depending on whether you remove the floats for winter or fly with the floats on, uh, if you fly with them on, it's the normal uh, maintenance procedures. You know, you maintain them and uh, keep the bearings greased to force water out of the bearings. We have grease zerks in each axle, and you just pump it until there's grease coming out of a weep hole and pushing the... Uh, milky colored or water out of the, the mixed right the mixed grease and and or lubricant and, and water out of it right yep. uh, because they can't be completely sealed tight because you otherwise you can't add grease we yeah. have to have there an opening to be in a, a seal to force uh, bad grease out and good grease in and we've talked about that on one of the previous episodes uh uh, it was either Chris Shannon or Harry Shannon. We were talking, uh, it was Chris Shannon, uh, talking about uh, essentially with the seaplane, with an AnFib, uh, it's almost impossible to have too much grease. Matter of fact, if you're not slinging grease off your wheels, uh, you probably don't have enough in there. Yeah, grease, grease is a good thing when you're <laughs> dealing with water, for sure. 
some operators like to clean that off nicely. That's <laughs> fine to clean that off, but make sure you still add more each time you... We recommend you do it every time you fly. Just pump a little grease in the axles. There is a 25-hour uh, inspection item on our uh, checklist, which is online, available to everybody at whipair.com. Uh that says every 25 hours do that. But if you're an operator who lands on water regularly or sits in water, and I recommend come. you do it every time. Yeah. And uh, bearings are, number one, getting hard to with supply chain issues right now. Bearings are one of the things that can keep you grounded. Absolutely. Uh, and the price of them right now is just gone through the ceiling. Uh, so let's talk about the antifreeze. Uh, so that's uh, something, again, we don't have to consider uh, down south. And I noticed a lot of condensation when I opened up my flow compartments in the hangar. Um, there was a tremendous amount of condensation on the inside of the uh, lockers, the float lockers. And that immediately made me start thinking about how much condensation may be in other areas of the airplane. But uh, on the float compartments, if you're looking at like a 2100 or an 8750, uh, do, you, do you adjust that amount of antifreeze and then, you know, go to the, the low amount for 2100 and going up to an 8750? What, what, what kind of, how much antifreeze should we be putting in those compartments? I don't know that there's a recommended amount. It's, uh, it's a matter of weight. If you, you know, you don't want to add too much. You don't want to add a gallon to each compartment because yeah. you're adding too much weight. To you just want to add enough to keep it right. From- that if a small amount of water gets in there or the condensation drips down the float, that it won't freeze. So a cup in a, in a compartment, just Should enough to, to allow the water to mix. If you're having leaking issues to where you know there's going to be more water in it, then I'd highly recommend you get those repaired or sealed uh, prior to winter. And then uh, so the antifreeze will stay in, too, because if yeah. it leaks in, it'll leak out. There you go. Yeah. So you, uh, I recommend you get those taken care of prior to winter. And do you see any issues from uh, the antifreeze as far as corrosion and or uh, affecting um, the ceiling, uh, you know, the, on, the, on the floats? Uh, corrosion, I have not personally noticed any uh, issues with corrosion caused by that. Uh, and the, the sealant we use is not affected by it. We use uh, uh, PRC-type sealant that is not affected Pretty by Pretty impervious to very it. Very much, yeah. And it's flexible. It expands and contracts, and it's a great sealant for floats. Okay. So I like that. Uh, and, uh, again, uh, it was very evident to me. I mean, there was still water in my, in my compartments. Um, I don't know if the airplane had sat out before it got dr- dragged in the hangar or what, but there was more water than that than I would have you know normally i I sponge that stuff out mm-hmm. in in the accessible ones uh but uh when we're talking the kind of temperatures that we've seen in the last week up here um i I love that suggestion of putting some antifreeze in there so uh also uh one of the things that was mentioned to me make sure. Uh, I check my hydraulic reservoir uh, to see what my fluid level is in the hydraulic reservoir. When we're talking the a temperature difference, when I parked the airplane, it was probably 85 degrees when I left it here. And now we've seen a 60 to 70 degree drop in temperature. So uh, hydraulic fluid, um, you want to address that uh, as far as the, the AnFib gear operation? Yeah, uh, the, uh, it is a, a hydraulic system is a sealed system. But the reservoir is a, uh, a part of the pump itself, and it is, it is not airtight. So you can get condensation and moisture in it. 
so you should always keep the level up, but we recommend to it every annual inspection that reservoir comes off and we clean, look for microbial growth or metal particles if the pump might be on the uh, edge of failing or if there's an issue within the pump and to get water out of that every annual. Uh, and if you see milky color or odd color. You've got at, water in there. <laughs> on your sight glass, then yeah. you might have water. Yeah. yeah. So I need to check my fluid before we take off. So I'm going to be needing to borrow uh, a ladder or uh, a stand to get up to, to check that on my turtle deck. So Yeah, on a, on a cub, I mean, you have an opening at the top that's fairly simple. On some yeah. float uh, models, it's not quite as easy to get a view of that uh, sight glass. Uh, we have openings like in a caravan. There's an opening in the aft bulkhead that allows you to view through it. Uh, but getting to it, if you have to add, you have to take a bulkhead cover off to get to it. Wow. But uh, not too difficult to access. Okay, super. So uh, we want to make sure that our bearings are, are well lubed and uh, that you pump some grease in there. We want to make sure that we uh, put some antifreeze in each of the compartments. Want to check that hydraulic reservoir, see if there's any milkiness and or check the level, uh, see if there's been any contraction of anything there. Um Preheat. Uh, it's cold out there. I don't like scrubbing metal on metal. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about some of the considerations. You know, again, we've already moved my airplane from a cold hanger to a warmer hanger, um, but I'm not thrilled about going out there and starting it that first time. And I'm going to do a very long warm up period on the engine as well. Yes. Uh, I mean, if you have a preheat system, obviously those are fantastic to plug them in. But if you're a south-based airplane, you probably don't have one of those. Uh, but yeah, preheat systems are great. Uh, if there's a ground preheat unit you can use to preheat the engine before you start it up, that's great because most of the wear in an engine is going to happen upon startup. When the engine's cold, the oil's not all the way up through the, the oil passages. Uh, so Yes, and the, and the long warm-up is critical. You make sure you get the oil temp up in the green zone before you start to advance power. You know, you want to make sure you let, let it idle or just above idle. Just enough to have oil just pressure. Just enough to <laughs> let it and be patient with your warm-up and make sure that it's uh, warm before you start adding too much power. Yeah, and in the Super Gub, it's not nearly as bad as one of the radio engines on, on the Grumman's that I'm used to flying. So that becomes a very extensive... <laughs> a lot more oil to heat up. <laughs> yeah, a lot more oil to heat up. <laughs> Gallons. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I'm really concerned about that. I think that's one of my biggest things about starting in the cold weather and getting going to get out of here and get south is uh, that initial, that first start. Uh, and, oh, yeah, hey, and I, multi-grade oils, 20, 50-weight oils will help that too when you... Uh, instead of running a straight 50 weight, yeah, you know, put an AM. And unfortunately, I've got 100 in there right now. So. Yeah, yeah, that becomes a little more of a factor. And it's it's harder on your starter because the engine's got to work harder to crank over when you have that thick oil in it. So uh, it, it can work just fine. It's just precautions you have to take. Yeah, you know, I didn't even think about that as we're talking. Uh, one of the things, I've got a lightweight lithium battery, and I've been away from the airplane for six weeks now. And uh, one of the things we did when we first got here was let's go get an extension cord and plug my charger in because I keep a battery maintainer on my airplane all the time. And the cranking ability of that small, lightweight battery um, is greatly diminished in these kind of temperatures. Absolutely. And uh, if you have a preheat system installed, some of those include battery uh, pads. 
that actually wrap around the battery to keep the battery warm along Oof. with heating the engine compartment and or engine components at the same time. And that's very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be looking for a blower to, to warm yeah. up the engine tomorrow morning. And we're going to try to get out of here. We'll see. <laughs> or if you can talk us into putting it in a heated hangar, that would be okay, too. <laughs> well, we're over in the heated hangar, but I was going to want a little more heat. Uh, and they really had to move. I mean, the, AJ and, and the guys really did a, a spectacular job. I mean, when the airplane was buried, and, and I, I, I felt so sorry for them because it, it's, you know, like 25 and snowing. And they, I, I can't even, I, I can't even quantify how many things they had to move to get the airplane out and get it over to the heated anchor. So I, I'd really like to thank them for that. Don't feel bad. That's what we do here. It's okay. You can uh, have us move your aircraft without any issues. Uh, some of the things we mentioned about when I looked at that uh, condensation in my lockers, I looked at my fuel tanks. I've got half fuel. Um, I do have a concern about some condensation potentially in my fuel tank. Um, and then we also mentioned fuel cap gaskets. Uh, you want to address that a little bit? Um, yep. Uh, obviously, when you're going from cold, cold to warm hangars or atmospheres, uh, you need to sump your tanks every time you fly. Every time, because you don't know the conditions. You might not even be here when aircraft are moved in and out. You may not even know that yours did. And condensation can be uh, gathering in your fuel tanks. Uh so I would highly, I highly recommend you sump every time you fly just to make sure there's no water in there. And, uh, yeah, the, some of the entry points for water can be your fuel cap gaskets. It's not uncommon during an inspection here that those get written up as cracked or weathered or hard. because uh, And that's the, that's the main uh, factor for us doing that is nervous about water getting in. During flight, sitting on a ramp when it's raining, uh, any of that can add to that problem. And the goal is to keep any moisture out of there. And cracked gaskets on your uh, fuel caps is a, is an entry point. Yeah. And so two things that I'm looking at. Number one, the airplane's been sitting now overnight. Uh, I like the fact that it's been stable to do that fuel sample. Uh, it hasn't been slushing around. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's level, which I'm pretty confident we are in these hangars. Uh, but, uh, we, so that's the thing is, is it's important, uh, a good idea when the airplane's been stable, that water's had a chance to settle to the lowest point. If you're in a, uh, level surface, like a good hangar floor, um, that's, I think advantageous to do that sample before you move the airplane. So I want to pull that fuel out before we start moving the airplane around and get it on an incline where it may be, you know, at the, the front of the fuel tank instead of the back. Um, and then also part of that extended run-up and warm-up period is going to give you time to maybe work some of that moisture through the fuel lines, things like that, before you need it on takeoff power and climb out. So I Absolutely. like that. Absolutely, yes. Uh, that, that long run-up not only helps uh, get everything up to temperature, but it's also allowing if there is anything in there, um, giving it a chance to work through the system before it it's critical when you need it. And that in the winter, that's uh, very critical. In the summer, the same thing. I mean, you still have the same scenarios that can happen. So the, that long run-up eliminates that process or that uh, possibility and the sumping is the same thing. 
Yeah. So I always probably run up longer than most people do uh, for that reason. I always try to be really gentle on the engine, um, even in Florida in, in warm weather. Um, I'll do a, a multi-stage warm-up where I'm at, you know, just a, uh, above idle. Then I'll go to about 1,200 RPM and literally time it and then go to, you know, as the engine starts warming up, I'll do 2,000 RPM. And this is with Anfibs where I have brakes, you know, and, and you're on land, but then I can go to 2,000 RPM for 30 seconds, and then I go to full power and do a static load on the engine for 30 seconds. Uh, because if I'm going to, I have the engine more pressurized at static thrust than I do on takeoff. And so it's a good time to give it a chance to go bang yes. uh, before you take off. <laughs> and you got do those mag checks. So at the end yeah. of the runway, when you're doing that, that's forcing more fuel in, getting things uh, rotated through the system also. Yeah. So uh, be careful, do a good run up and, and get everything warmed up. You know, one of the things as we sit here, though, that I was thinking also is, uh, winter's a good time to maybe schedule some of your upgrades. And there's really, uh, we're going to do a whole separate uh, podcast uh, on all the facilities that you guys have here. But it's a good time. And I, th- I think the locals probably know that. Uh, but winter's a time to do your upgrades and schedule your maintenance. So the airplane's ready to go in flying season. And uh, there's more time for things to, you know, for you to do things correctly. Uh, you want to talk about, uh, you know, the, the kinds of things you see and, and how far in advance the pilot should schedule uh, some winter maintenance. Sure. Uh, the, uh, it's pretty common for us in the fall to start our float maintenance season, if you will. The operators that don't leave their floats on year-round, we pull them off for them, we store them for them, and we uh, start scheduling that maintenance in the door. Uh, annuals, any repairs they've uh, decided they needed through the operating season when they don't want their their aircraft out of the water. Uh, we get all that scheduled so we can do that during the winter so they can continue operating uh, with wheels on instead of uh, their floats. Uh, how many and, and how that, many airplanes come in and do that? Do you have a, a guess uh, of how many airplanes do that, that handoff between the floats and the wheels? Probably between, uh, probably near 10. Okay. That we every year we know they're going to come in to get their floats removed, and, the, uh, and then in the spring we schedule them right back on. Okay, and are these one eighty fives. What what kind of aircraft are we talking? Uh, mostly caravans. Caravans. We do have some two hundred six operators who do that that fl- keep their airplane up here uh, in the north, so they they take theirs off and we put them back on every year for them also, and we do their maintenance in the off season. So what's a caravan? Anfib to gear swap out. I know you've got a whole hangar full of gear here. Yeah. Yes, we <laughs> it's do. an amazing amount of uh, land gear sets and storage here. Yes, and and float storage. You know, our, that hangar is used for a lot of airplanes in the summer, and then in the winter when those floats are, we have a stacking system where we can yeah. actually stack the floats up. Uh, that eats up a lot of that hangar, so it's it's more of a float storage hangar in the winter. I think the the caravan landing gear. Is stacked three 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 levels high in it there. <laughs> it's crazy. It is, and that it it works out great. We have special racks made for it, and they they store in a hangar all winter, and and then in the in the spring when they're scheduling the aircraft back on, they'll usually have us go through that land plane gear, grease the bearings, make sure the brakes are okay, and then before they go back on, basically perform an annual inspection of the of the uh, land plane gear when it's on floats and. 
floats during when it's on land. Yeah. So what's it, uh, how long does it take to switch a caravan? I mean, that's a, to me, I can see, you know, I commonly think about a 185, a super cub, uh, you know, things like that, doing the swap between amphibs and land gear and, and land gear and skis. I honestly never even thought about caravans doing a swap out between floats and, and land gear for the winter. Um, how much time is involved in that and, and how big of a job is it? It's, they're actually designed very nicely with the caravan. The, they come off and on fairly easily. It's like 30 hours of man hours of labor to, to switch one from floats to land plane. Uh, and it, it's really not difficult. There's just a lot of little steps you have to take. Uh, the way the floats are, are designed, they plug right into the caravan land plane system. It's not difficult. The caravan comes with the forward attachments built into it four floats. The, the main uh, gear attach points are designed by our engineering to plug right into where the land plane gear goes in. It's very well designed, so it makes the process much easier. Okay. And what if it's single point? What if it has single point on it? Uh, our sink, we have a single point receptacle built into the float, and we have a land plane receptacle too. So they just one comes off and the other goes on. It's basically a hose and some wiring. Wow. So if in perfect conditions, if you bring your caravan in, you could do a swap in one week. Bring it in on Monday and be out on Friday under yes. perfect conditions. Oh, yes. Yes. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. It's usually shorter than that. Wow. It's usually three days. So the crew could come, sit here, wait for the airplane, and, and fly away with it Some a couple do. days later. Yeah, if they're from distant locations, yeah. So wow. A lot do, yes. Well, what have we failed to talk about? Uh, you know, this is interesting because, again, uh, I don't spend as much time in this stuff. And uh, it's interesting to have my airplane up here for the first time. First time I've had my airplane in these conditions, um, the, the, the Super Cub that we're operating now. And um, we're trying to get south with it. What have we failed to cover that we should cover about what pilots should consider with their seaplane for winter operations? We talked about it. it's probably not as extensive as most people think. And I think it really varies a lot also uh, you, if you're in a Lake Hood environment where the aircraft are sitting outside. Um, you want to make sure it's covered. You want to have an engine cover on. You want to have those wings covered, uh, the tail covered, uh, things like that. Anything you can do to protect the airplane. But for those of us who are lucky enough or fortunate enough to have a nice hangar to put their airplane in, um, it might not be as extensive as people think, as uh, you know, as us Southern boys think, <laughs> uh, for what we need to do to the airplanes. Yeah, I think we've pretty much covered most of that. Uh, the only considerations is you're, if you're flying in winter conditions is being aware of your surroundings because they're not approved for flight and known icing. So if you have any icing conditions, yeah, yeah. You just have to take a little extra time and, and not fly that day because uh, obviously ice would build up a lot faster on a float because you have all that surface area trying to catch the ice. So that would be the other main uh, consideration is flight when the conditions aren't, aren't uh, ideal for flight. <laughs> yeah, so we talked about that. So cold snow uh below well below you know when you get into the 28s and and below that cold typically isn't very sticky on the airplanes it's that wet snow and one of the things that was a consideration for today even us uh heading south today was uh part of the forecast uh, besides the fact that it's ifr now was snow mist 
And that mist was the red flag. That was my no-go yeah, right. at that point. It's just pre-planning and, and checking the weather and checking all the conditions on your whole route. That's, yeah. That mist is just begging for icing on the airplane. Yes, correct. It's, it's hazy. You can see the <laughs> haze in the air. So it's, you want a clear, dry air in these cold temperatures, not the – when it's right, right, even flying low as we do as seaplane pilots, um, you know, we're going to be going out here probably pretty low flying the Mississippi on the way out. But 2,000 2, feet even, um, misting, hazy conditions. And, and you might go through an inversion or a, a temperature change en route uh, if you're in that – I would say danger zone uh, of, of that freezing level at 32 degrees. Um, if it's not much colder than 32, you want to be like 25 or or less where it's not going to be sticky, uh, or you want to look for 32 and clear without any visual, visual uh, uh, precip in the air. Absolutely. Uh, keeping up with the changing conditions and situational awareness. Make sure you're aware of what's happening around you when it comes to ice gathering on the floats because they can get heavy very quickly in, the, in those conditions. <laughs> just have to plan for more possible time. You're just going to have to spend waiting. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy to say. I know. I get I know. that. <laughs> yeah. we, uh, we, we're on day three, by the way, sitting here waiting to head south. So, uh, yeah. You seem very patient. <laughs> yeah. So we're making the most out of the time. So uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, and uh, anyway, well, Kurt, uh, thank you. Uh, again, I want to thank everyone at Whip Air uh, for their generosity, their hospitality, for being so just amazingly uh, rolling out the red carpet for us. And I know they do this for everyone, uh, quite honestly. I mean, I hear customer after customer have the same experience. They come here and I think they're kind of overwhelmed uh, by how, how pleasurable the, the experience is here. Um, but you guys bend over backwards to make it a good experience. Uh, if I was going to get stuck someplace, uh, it's a great place to get stuck. Um, but I am looking forward to getting home to warm. Uh, this is prime season to be flying seaplanes in Florida. <laughs> I'm one of those odd people that like this weather. It doesn't bother me. Come late January and February, I get a little tired of it, but this doesn't bother me too much. Well, thank you, uh, Kurt, for taking time out of your busy schedule. Uh, it, it is a great topic. We have more maintenance topics to talk about, and those will be on some future episodes of, of Waterflying. Uh, but literally, um, I pulled you off the shop floor, wanted to sit down with you. You were gracious enough to do it. And uh, if you have any questions, uh, should people give you a call if they have a question on weather, winter operations or anything like that? Absolutely. I can, you can call me anytime. I believe my phone number is probably on the website somewhere. Uh, I'm more than happy to, if people have questions about Anything maintenance or, or uh, recommendations or questions about our maintenance manual that's online, anything, you can call me anytime. Awesome. So uh, whipair.com, uh, just reach out to them and uh, ask for Kurt in uh, the maintenance department, and they'll get you hooked up. We hope this has been a, an informative uh, episode of Waterflying. It's a little bit different being in the snow with uh, the seaplane, uh, but uh, we're looking forward to getting all, along the way, and we've been doing a lot of great work here. So, uh, Kurt, thank you again. And uh, until uh, next time, fly safe, fly often, and uh, keep uh, using our winter to uh, work on those seaplane skills and that seaplane maintenance. We'll see you. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, 
I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.